Welcome to a new episode of The Love Show. So before I go into our guest of the day or what our show's about, I just want to take a second to really thank all of you that are supporting us on Patreon because I know you could do so many things with the $2 that aren't our show and that you choose to support our show. It really means a lot to us. Today's guest is uh, amazing actress, friend, a person that I've seen around a lot. I met her through her daughter. Today's guest is Frances Fisher. Um, She's done everything from um, theater to film. And I mean, some of her titles are The Unforgiven and little movies like Titanic. She's she's incredible. I, I like her outside of film. She's just a really wonderful person, which you'll see in the interview. In the interview, we discuss all kinds of things about her childhood, where she grew up, theater versus film, you know, new world, old world, you know, topics that I keep seeming to harp on as I learn how to deliver what I'm calling a podcast. I hope you enjoy it. I did. It's, again, uh, really interesting to have someone over and Normally, I see Francis around Oscar season, and we go to uh, various events that I'll run into her at, like, calling camps, parties, and just stuff like that. It's nice to see her outside of that. She came over with her dogs, and we had a really good conversation, and I had a great time. So here it is, my interview with the great, the wonderful Francis Fisher. Now things are dreary, baby, and it's windy and cold. Gray Chihuahua is August because my daughter fell in love with him 11 years ago. He looked like a little mouse. Uh-huh. Named him August because eventually she knew I was going to end up taking care of him. Mm-hmm. And August Renoir is my favorite painter. So she named him August. And then this little black guy is uh, Batman. Why did you call him Batman? Because when he was a baby, I could hold him in the palm of my hand and he looked like a little bat. He was like a wind-up toy, all black. They're so, cute. What are they? What kind? He's a Chihuahua poodle. Okay. People think he's like a little How gerbil or something. They're both 11. 
Okay. That's yeah. old in dog years, yes? Yeah, 11 times 7. There's 77. Oh, my gosh. Do you remember how we met? Was it Francesca? It was or how Francesca. Was it? Yeah, I think it was probably at an event or at a restaurant or I don't think it was a club because I don't go to clubs anymore. You don't go to One Oak Raging anymore? <laughs> when was your last night club? Oh, I don't even remember. It's like a whole other world. I mean, I went to clubs in the 70s right. in New York, you know. Where were you, was, where'd you grow up? I grew up overseas. I'm a construction kid. My father worked for Foster Wheeler okay. Construction, and he built oil refineries and steel mills all over the world. Wow. So I was born in England. Then we moved to Columbia, Bogota. Uh, we lived in Canada in Halifax, mm -hmm. in a big white house on a lake, Texas for a little bit. And then uh, age six, we went to France. And there were no American schools there, so I learned to read and write French before English. Wow. And somehow I learned enough English, I think, from my mother reading to me mm -hmm. and also little Lulu comic books. I don't know if they even exist anymore. I didn't, never heard of them. And then we moved to Rio de Janeiro. You have a uh, crazy in second, story. Second, third, and fourth grade. In fifth and sixth grade, I was in Iowa. And seventh grade, we all moved to uh, Turkey, which was extraordinary because we all lived in barracks like uh, on the side of a mountain right off the Black Sea and what happened is that they had forgotten to hire teachers for all the kids of the construction workers so somebody's wife taught us correspondence courses and we were sitting in the church <laughs> in these little rooms off the main church area and there were like three or four of us in each grade not many because it was a you know, a construction campsite, basically. So we only went to school half a day. And around one o'clock, we would go down and rent horses from the local farmers for 50 cents and then go out and ride horses on the beach on the Black Sea where it was beautiful because it was before pollution. Wow. So you could open your eyes under the water and there was nothing on the beach except us. Wow. Yeah. It's, was, your, was your mom into the arts or is it just something that you found? She, she sang, uh, she was in the choir at St. Olaf's, but she really, she loved traveling. So I grew up with no prejudice mm -hmm. in a way because I, we would just get ourselves immersed in whatever culture we were in. I remember one time she took my sister and I and my baby brother at the time on a little, it was like a little mini bus ride in Italy because we were there for, we lived in Milan also. Driving, driving down this country road and then we stop at this church and walk in and there is the Last Supper on the wall as a fresco. I had no idea. I thought it was a painting, mm -hmm. right? And as a kid, I'm like looking at this big fresco of the Last Supper I'm standing there. What's a fresco? It's like a painted on the wall. Okay. You sound like you're mostly life versus school, almost. Yes, sir. You got it. <laughs> when all, you know, so we ended up going to uh, Texas when I was 13, and it was the year integration was happening. And that was the first time I really was aware of what prejudice is. Because mm -hmm. some of the kids, not all of them, 
some of the white kids were really upset that those people were going to be integrated into the school system. What year was this? 1965. 65. Right? Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So when all of my friends in Orange graduated and most of them wanted to go off to college, Mm -hmm. I thought, if I don't have to go to school, I'm not going to school. (laughs) Because I had such a strange schooling. Yeah. You know, uh, in, in Rio, they had messed up my records and they put me into the third grade instead of the second grade because I was first grade in France. They put me into the third grade when we went to Rio. Um, and the only way they realized that I wasn't a third grader was because I didn't know how to spell Thanksgiving and pilgrim. Isn't that, <laughs> that weird you how you up? remember these things? So they put you back. They put me back, wow. but that was the actual grade I was supposed to be in because I was only seven. Where did you go from uh, straight oh, out of God. high school? What did oh, you do? Did you work? I did. I went to work at Firestone Synthetic Rubber and Latex Company, which was on Restaurant Row, uh, Restaurant Row, listen to me, uh, Chemical Row. Uh-huh. So I was, became a secretary. I love that they had the nerve to call something Chemical Row. Right? <laughs> yeah. And Firestone's the tire company I would know, right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, I got married right out of high school. Wow. Just to like get out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> and you both lived in Texas? Yeah, we used to go uh, deer hunting and dirt bike riding. Wow. It was when dirt bikes were first invented. That was like in the 70s. I grew up riding dirt bikes. That was one of the things that I enjoyed more than anything in childhood. Where did you grow up? I was born in Santa Monica at St. John's, and then we lived all over the place, but longest Canoga Park. And then I was really young when I moved to New York City. I kind of jumped, you know? Yeah. But, um... So did you go by yourself to New York? Or did I you met a, a, there was all these sudden moments. I had gone through this whole thing where I was at the gym a lot and I met older people that were working out. Like I met Arnold Schwarzenegger and weird things. I had a weird biography. And there's a funny story in this because my friend Mike Stein, who was kind of an it kid that just went to the gym to get a little bigger, he noticed me and he was like, we thought, that you had leukemia or some horrible disease and this was your last wish to know all these bodybuilder stars. <laughs> because it's very weird that this 14-year-old, 15-year-old kid's like hanging out with Schwarzenegger. It didn't make sense. So he's like, he took interest in me. He's like, do you want to go to a, we're having a, a party. I just fell into the guy that knew everyone and did all the clubs. Oh my God. So my life dramatically flips on this kid, Mike Stein. And then I meet a girl that's like, you know, I think she's, 27 when I was 16 and then she's like I'm moving to New York City it's too bad we just started dating Um, but in New York City she goes there's these guys directing music videos and everyone in LA that you know seems to be full of shit and she's like I know a kid that's directing videos in New York come meet him so I went with a ticket for two weeks met a kid named Kevin Bray and went right into production and never came back. Oh, I my. did 16 to 30, pretty much. What What year was this? When you, you know, I'm 50 you... now. I'm bad with years. I was early 80s, late 90s. Early um, 80s, Right when okay. uh, hip-hop explodes, this kid named Kevin was directing five videos a week. Wow. And he was like, you can art direct, you can AD, and then what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to direct. So I was able to direct a video before my 17th birthday. 
So there was no going back to L.A. I thought I was, you know, ruling the world because I was directing rap videos. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, it and was a lucky course. It was like Mike at the gym, girlfriend. And next thing you know, I'm in New York City and I'm like, you know, meeting these great artists and these great people. And it all went like a thousand miles an hour. And I had the coolest, most beautiful, chic girlfriend that knew everyone. She was the connector. She knew everyone. Where she, is she now? She is. Uh, she lives in uh, Hancock Park, and she became a monster uh, interior designer. It's so interesting because I think about those moments in life that really turn you into the direction. Mm-hmm. Like when I was the the secretary at Firestone, sitting, you know, at the desk, and this guy. Gene Goza looked at me and he says, you know what? You should audition for the community theater. There's a thing going on. So long story short, I started doing, I auditioned for Summer and Smoke, a Tennessee Williams play for the part of the Ingenue. So I ended up doing that play and a New York City actor came to Orange, Texas, this little bitty town to retire, John Holland. And I was so impressed that he came to the theater to see the show. And afterwards, uh, came backstage and uh, said that I had talent. That's pretty big. And so at one of the house parties after the show, John sat me down on the couch and he said, you know, Francis, you've got talent. I can help you get out of this town. Literally, he said that. Get out of the town and go become a professional actress. Wow. You can do it. It's the first time anybody had talked to me like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought... Okay. Yeah. Because by this time, my ex (laughs) was thinking I was having an affair with somebody because I was always at the theater. I bet you felt really threatened because, you know, he's probably simpler and you're going into some way other world. Yeah, it was a true left turn. I Mm -hmm. had no idea that that was going to happen. But I found my passion. Where does it go from there? Where do you go from Texas? John uh, gave me a letter of introduction to the Barter Theater in Virginia. And it was named the Barter Theater because back in the day when it was started, people didn't have money, but they would bring eggs or chickens or baked goods or whatever, and they would barter for a ticket to go see the actors on the stage. I went there as an apprentice because they had an apprentice program. I learned everything that goes into making a production happen, assisting the director. I was building sets and sewing costumes and helping actors run lines. And Did they pay you to work? No, we paid them. I'll never forget. It was $425 a week. That's a lot of money then, isn't it? Yeah, in 1970, was it 1972? I remember. So you're at this theater group. How long do you last there? It was one season. It must have been May, June, July, August, something like that, four or five months. And uh, we all lived in this big two-story dorm room uh-huh. and stuff. You know, all the professional actors who were hired from New York City came down because they were doing plays. So I got to uh, know the professional actors from New York City. Okay. And one of my jobs was to cue one of the actresses because she had a lot of lines to learn. And one evening she said, well, what are you going to do when the season's over? I said, I don't know. I'm just going to go to New York. She said, well, you know, I I have a three-year-old and I need a nanny. 
you can come live with me in my Park Avenue apartment in the maid's room. And you can be in charge of taking Yvonne to school in the morning and home and give her her lunch and give her a nap, whatever. And the evenings you'll be free. So that's what I did. I moved into the maid's room and then I found acting classes and just started getting myself, you know, you started in that community. On yeah. And then I found out that Stella Adler was in town and Lee Strasberg was in town and he had a place. So I thought, well, getting older, I'm 22 years old now. I better like hurry up. <laughs> 22. <laughs> so I didn't study with Lee at the time, not until I got into the actor's studio, but I studied with one of his teachers that he, I trained with her. And then I also studied with Stella at the same time. Wow. So there I was learning these different approaches to acting and taking what worked for me from both. In the shorthand of it, I realized that Stella was kind of from the outside in and Lee was from the inside out. Now, that's a vast generalization. But it's fascinating. And then there was crossover because Stella was, oh, she was such an amazing teacher. It was like, what are the circumstances? What is, what is the religious situation? Of, you know, what's going on politically? What's the weather like? What does your uh, character eat in the morning? What's her day like? And so Lee would also do that. He says, if you find the shoes of the character, you'll get the way your character walks. And then if you get the way the character walks, you'll know how to move your body. And then also the emotional life was very big with Lee Strasberg and being alive inside and not doing something where you think you have to do it that way because that's what it says on the page. Also learning sensory work, which was Lee's big thing was about doing the sensory work and there were exercises that we would do to stimulate the imagination If you have the smell of a lemon, if it stimulates a memory for you and you work on that so it becomes your bag of tricks, it's in your toolbox. So if you're working, you know, every night, if you have to burst into tears on the stage, if the circumstances aren't feeding you, you have to be able to conjure something that will make you explode with those tears. Mm -hmm. And I actually did it. Ah, Actually, did like, I did, did it, it just come to you? From I did study? desire on under the elms, and it's it's a play about a woman who kills her child that she has with her stepson because she wants to go back to the way things were before. So she figures, I'll just kill the baby and then we'll be fine. <laughs> and so the old husband finds out that she killed the baby and he shames her and then it hits her on the stage, boom, burst into tears. How am I going to do that? Because it was never happening in rehearsal. I never could find that trigger until dress rehearsal. And I had the costume on. And one of the things that Lee would teach us was relaxation, how to relax in a chair. And never really understood how important relaxation is. Because if you're really relaxed then your creativity can bubble up because there's nothing that's blocking it. Anxiety and Yeah, tension and your mind and your thinking and you're in your head. It's like a letting go. Yeah. 
So I was sitting there at the kitchen table on the stage and I was hearing my husband yelling at me about this circumstance. And all of a sudden, a memory came to me and the smell of this winter season where a friend of mine in real life had lost her baby. She had a miscarriage and we all trekked out. This is in upstate New York and we all trekked out to the gravesite and buried that child. And the memory just came right back to me and I burst into tears right at the moment that it was supposed to. to happen. And every night since then, I would just relax in that chair and just let the sensory experience overtake me and boom, I would burst. It's the most extraordinary thing. So that's why I knew that you know, the method worked for me. Yeah. Just tell you, I, I just thought about one of my other fabulous acting teacher, Sandra Seacat. After I studied with Stella. I've heard a lot oh, about her. yeah. Yeah, she's an epic, epic yeah. teacher. Yeah, so she's I still studied. around? Yes, she is. She's teaching privately. Sometimes she does big workshops and stuff. I haven't done one with her in a long time. So one of the things that Sandra told me when I, like I did um, an audition and I didn't get it. And I remember walking into class and I told Sandra, I said, I don't understand why I didn't get the part. I mean, they, they hugged me afterwards. They were like clapping. They were happy. They were laughing. And she said, Francis, you know, we're on a soul journey in this life. Maybe you did that role so well that your soul did not have to actually go through the experience of shooting it. So trust that it's bigger than the role, what you're doing. And something else will come along that will give you the actual experience that you're needing to have to help your soul grow. That's How about that? Heavy. She packed my bags last night, free flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite by then. I miss the earth so much I miss my wife It's lonely out in space On such a timeless flight
place to raise your kids In fact, it's cold as hell And there's no one there to raise them If you did And all the science I don't understand It's just my job five days a week transition from theater to film like was there some big audition some moment where you transfer into movies oh my god uh there was a place in new york back in the day called cafe central i've heard of that oh my god that was the place to be you know um bruce willis was the bartender okay right it was like that kind of place everybody went there I was hanging out one night with a group of people because everybody would just table hop and sit and talk and blah, blah, blah. And Henry Jaglum, he was sitting there at the table with his little hat and he's going, I, uh, God, I'm starting production next week and I don't have a production manager. And I went, oh, I could do that for you. I had no idea what a production manager was because I was only doing theater. I was not doing film. He said, okay, I'll give you a part in this movie, too. Wow. So that was the easy part. And uh, Karen Black was in it, you know, and we shot it on the streets of New York with no permits, nothing. We just do it stealth and like gorilla. Good old days. And we shot at the ca- at Cafe Central. I lived in a loft at the time. We shot in my loft, which is uh, a memory that I know I'll never let any film crew into my house yeah again. that happened <laughs> i shot a lot of my film in this house and it was brutal it's yeah. horrible the right? worst was realizing at like four in the morning 
that everyone goes, okay, that's a wrap. And then I went in my bedroom and they had put everything on top of my bed. So I just kind of slept on sandbags. And then, then it gets worse. In the morning, they sent second unit to prep it about two hours after wrap. So the second team came in and woke me up again, setting up the house for the next day. Right. Yeah. And you learn really quickly. Nobody's ever going to be in my house again. No more. Yeah. They destroyed it so many times. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you go away from theater or you keep balancing? No, I was doing I was doing theater, too. And then, um, oh, my God, this is so funny. I I really should write this down because because theater didn't pay at all. I thought. I should do commercials. You can make money doing commercials, right? I had no idea how to do that, though. The thing about New York is you could just walk in anywhere. L.A. is a whole different thing. You can't get onto a studio without a pass and knowing somebody. I would walk into advertising agencies with my headshot that my boyfriend took. And I'd say, I want to do a commercial. And they go, young lady, this is not how you do it. A few people kept my resume and picture and one the night before Christmas Eve I'll never forget I get a call Francis Fisher we'd like to hire you to do this TV commercial the day after Christmas can you do it can you show up in New Jersey at this about time I went yes of course how much are you paying me $400 it's a buyout what does that mean it means you won't get any residuals because it's a local commercial. I, go, I, I had no idea what he was talking about. I went, $400? Oh, my God, yes. So I went and did this commercial. I was basically a, a riding in an elevator and walking out of an elevator into, and some guy with a great shirt, because it was a shirt commercial, walked by and I kind of like looked at him or something and smiled. That was it. But the guy who played the elevator operator, Richie Allen, I'll never forget. He turned out to be one of the biggest commercial actors in that day and age back then. Wow. He took me under his wing and he took me all over New York City and showed me how to crash auditions for commercials, how to, he introduced me to agents and I did a couple of commercials so I was able to pay the rent. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to another, um, one of these agents where I'd gotten a Dristan commercial and made $5,000 for the year. It's like a hundred grand then, It's right? like a hundred grand, <laughs> yeah. right? This is like 70s. He said, do you want to go up for a soap opera? I went, soap opera? Yeah. It's the edge of night. I never watched soap operas. And I was, you probably didn't even have a television in New York, did you? Uh, did I did not have did. a television, I didn't have no. a TV the whole time I lived in New York. Yeah. I had a television in Texas because I remember watching... All my children, Susan Lucci. And that was so far away from my reality. But now here I was going up for an audition for The Edge of Night. And it was like a spoiled little rich girl. I went, oh, that'll be fun. I remember walking into that audition. That's when you actually auditioned with the actors in the room, with the director, with the producers. It's like the real deal. Now you, these, these auditions on tape and it's just <laughs> You have so, an intern asking you oh, stuff. I know, and somebody who can't even read with you. And it's just, it's so uncreative. It's just too bad. Anyway, I walked into the room and Louis Turin, who was there playing my father, I just looked at him and I went, Daddy! And he went, Deborah! And we ran into each other's arms instant connection and then we did the scene and it was 
great because we had this inherent connection with each other. And I'll never forget, by the time I got home, the call was on my answering machine. You got the job. Let's negotiate the contract. I mean, these it's like, it was magic. And I thought, oh, wow, is that all I have to do? All I have to do is say, this is what I want, and I'm going to get it. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of, the next couple of years was kind of like that, the clarity of it. How long know? did you do that show? I did that for four years. Oh, wow. Because it was a couple days a week, and I was doing some experimental theater. I was able to do both for a while. And then I decided to audition for the actor's studio and become a member. Because having done the soap opera for that many years, it was taking me in a direction that I didn't want to go. Right. Because people were talking about buying houses and in the country and I thought, I don't want to buy a house. You're I don't not want done to retire. Yet. I'm not just done starting. Yet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What kind of people are at the actors uh at the what's it called? The act- actor's studio? Yeah, at that time. Like when you get in and when you start working. Oh God. Well I I was the last batch of people who got in before Lee passed. It was a big deal to get into the actor's studio well, back still, then. It still is, isn't it? Yeah, you have I to audition. You have to go through the audition process. Yeah, and, and you know, you have to walk up those stairs. And it's scary because the people who are judging you, Lee Grant, Lee Strasberg, Shelley Winters, Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, people like that, Joanne Woodward, you know, those yeah. were the people who were there at the time, you know. My friend Danny brought me, um, he said, hey, he's one of the members. And he said, do you want to come see Martin Landau? He's doing a class. And I went there and I, and I was so honored in watching him because he's one of my favorite actors. Oh. And this woman who's probably, I don't know, 60 or 70 years old did one of the most gripping scenes I ever saw. And uh, she ends the scene and he's, Landau sitting there and he's kind of, doesn't look, very amused and he says uh what did you choose before you came in as you know your what was your choice so he was like kind of disappointed with everything oh. and i was like you know emotionally on a roller coaster with somebody that's better than anything i've seen in a long time yeah but him not so much well but you that's know, that's gnarly you but know? but you know the thing is about the actor studio is uh-huh. that it is a lab that you work on stuff and it's like nobody gets blown away by the talent of the person because you assume that people do have the talent. Yeah. Otherwise, you wouldn't get into the that's studio. That's first nature. You're supposed to be there and then go from there. Right? And then and then you work on things. So that's exactly right. After the scene, like nobody claps, right? It's, it's not a performance. It's a work session. So, yes, one of the questions is, what did you choose? What are you working on? And you say, I was working on the cold. Yeah. Or I was, you know, working on whatever it is. You As know, an like outsider, though, things. if you don't know anything and you're me, you're just like, wow. Yeah. Oh, and then I started doing a guest spot on some TV show. What was it? The, the Equalizer. Uh-huh. Anyway, Robert Mitchum was a guest star also. That's and, intense. And he and I became friends. On Robert the, Mitchum. Okay. Yeah, Bob. And he was saying, you need to go to California. Spread your wings. You, do you like working in front of cameras? That's where the... Was he kind of a movie star then? 
Oh, he was huge. Yeah. He was. This is like his outro almost, and it's your intro. Yeah, kind of. yeah, 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 exactly. I saw him at Ben Frank's when I was about 16 or 15 years old and was just flipped out. Him and Anthony Perkins were two people I've seen in the flesh that yeah. blew my mind visually because yeah. they look like movie stars. So we were saying, he says, you need to go to California. He says, but, and you know, I live in Santa Barbara. And uh, you can come and, you know, my wife and I, you can like spend the night if you need to. We'll, we'll... I never did that. Mm-hmm. But just the, <laughs> the openness of, and his encouragement. He was like John Holland. I just. This is the second place that pushes you along. Yes. I just thought about it right now. I never thought of it before. John Holland encouraged me to get out of Orange, Texas and go to New York. And Bob encouraged me to get out of New York and go to L.A. That's amazing. What's it like, L.A., when you dock? (laughs) (laughs) Coming to L.A. Oh, my God. I know. My brother, God bless him, my brother Bill, eight years younger than I, was living in Burbank, California, Mm -hmm. in a one-bedroom. And I ended up sleeping on an air mattress in his living room. And I... I'm in L.A., what am I doing here? It was so foreign to me because I've got a car. It was really different. Oh, I was thinking about Bob. We had looping to do on the equalizer. And that was something that I'd never done before. You know, to recreate your emotional state that you were in at the time that you're so not in at the time you're doing looping it's it it could be a month later Uh and if it's a film it could be months later and you're in a big box right in a studio with the screen in front of you and nothing sensorily to fill you up so that's a skill in and of itself and i watched bob of course bob had a certain delivery anyway because he was used to it he's such a pro he nailed his looping in one take because basically he was just talking like that. I understand. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was so impressed by that. Was, Let's go get a drink, kid. Come on. It's on me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Jeez. When does, like, some, like, when do you pick up? Because you've done so many movies. How does that pick up? Um, it was a movie called Pink Cadillac that was starring Clint Eastwood. So I went in and auditioned for the casting director, and it was on tape, and uh, then I ended up getting the job. I found myself in Reno. It was like a small Las Vegas, right? With this, And the way uh, Eastwood does his uh, pre- production stuff they would always have like a little gathering before the movie starts that's when everybody's was there he directing or is he acting? he was producing it and everything but he was letting his uh stunt guy buddy van horn direct it so he could just be free to act Focus. in it only mm-hmm. so that's when we met and um that was a, another left turn in my life <laughs> wasn't expecting it at all but uh, i fell in love yeah did you fall in love on set, or was it just something progressed? The instant I saw him, I... Oh, my God. And he, you, I'm sure. You know, I have a naivete 
I didn't really know who he was. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You didn't do some deep dive on who this guy is. You just knew some movies with a gun. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. But those eyes got me. And uh, yeah, so he's a flirt, you know, and I thought I was special. And for a while I was. Right. Yeah. You have a lot of films. Yeah. So is there somebody that like you found working with that connected more than others or were you just auditioning and being in everything? Just like say Cassavetes had a group of people. He had his five friends and they did eight things. Was it kind of like that? Not not really. I mean, I did, I think, about three or four movies with Henry Jaglum over the years. Mm -hmm. But then the, the thing about acting for me anyway was kind of like you create this family you are very intense you have intense emotional experiences with each other and then you rap and then you move on and you like gypsies right because that was my upbringing that was how my life was so that's why i took to it so much you Mm -hmm. know the itinerant aspect of it it's like oh i'm gonna be in france for a couple of weeks or i'm gonna be in the middle of the desert doing something and you know the adventure of it is great you know and for a young person that's like oh my goodness meeting all these different people i've met so many amazing people you know do you feel like you were on set for like oh like 10 years at one point is there gaps in between oh of course of course you know the the inevitable thinking i'll never work again that all actors go through you know forever work again Unless you're lucky enough to be in a series or something like that, you know, where you actually have a steady paycheck. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, the business has changed so much. It's really Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the Hollywood and the films you've seen. And then today, you must have an interesting point of view on where we were, where we are. Yeah, and I mean... What's the strongest thing that you see? Uh, the lack of artistry when it comes to the casting process, the way they work. I mean, now the business actors, aspect. the business of it, you know, it's just been taken over by bean counters. Right. And it's been that way for. Yeah, it's like investment bankers and yeah. looking for numbers to rise. Yeah. And, and putting people together, not because of really of their chemistry, but because of value, you know, what they can sell in a foreign value yeah. overseas market. And, you know, that's why so many movies tank. Because they're artificially wed to each other as opposed to the chemistry. Like what my father and I on Edge of Night had. We had chemistry. And that's what made our scenes sing. Even though it was a soap opera, it was fun to do because we connected, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Nowadays, unless you're a movie star, which is, you know, very few and far between, like 0.01% of people in this business mm-hmm. make a true good living and the rest of us are paper bag actors like, you, know, you bring your lunch to work with you and uh, we're all working three times as much for half the pay but I think you're a known person though you're not in the, a blur you're a one of one person you know well, your I've career been in, has been huge yeah well Unforgiven mm-hmm. was, was a great film classic and then you know the other one titanic Mm -hmm. was seen by pretty much everyone the world i think it's still the most grossing movie ever no or he beat himself jim beat himself with avatar yes he's first second and third place (laughs) yes tough place to be (laughs) yeah 
Talk about genius. Oh, my God. What a guy. Loved working with him. I bet. Tell me yeah. what was it like to be on set. Oh, I have a great audition story. I've tell told me. it before, but I might as well Who tell cares? you. I want to hear it. I don't so know. I'm at my house living in the Palisades. And my daughter is like three years old. And I'm cleaning out, again, it's before cell phones and stuff like that. And I'm going through address books, right? Oh, my old address book from New York. Oh, isn't that cute? And I'm going through, I go, oh, Mally Finn. She was a casting director in New York. I hadn't talked to Mally Finn in so long. I'm going to call her and let her know that I'm in L.A. I call her up. And Mally, I just want to let you know I'm in L.A. I haven't seen you in a few years. Just hope you're well. Two days later, a script arrives. Titanic. Wow. Now, wow. did my agent submit me anyway? I don't think so. Right. I think it was that phone call. That's what these things are, yeah. I'm getting chills. Rest her soul. God bless her. So... I get the script, and it's a couple of scenes. One is the corset scene, and uh, they tell my agent, Jim's not going to be there. He's shooting the modern-day part of Titanic in Nova Scotia, you know, with Gloria Stewart and Bill Paxton and all of them. So they put me on tape, and I don't hear anything for a month or two. It's like, oh, well, I guess I didn't get that. Right. I... Uh, book a little vacation with my daughter and as I'm changing planes from one island in Hawaii to the other how did I get did I have an answering machine how did I get that call maybe my agent called me said they want you to come back you're going to meet Jim Cameron he wants to take you to the next step I was like, oh my god I go to his office in Santa Monica and I've got my little period costume on just enough to give the flavor of that character and my hair's up. And I'm sitting there and I'm feeling pretty good, you know, because I, I understand who this character Ruth is. This guy comes out and he goes, Francis Fisher? I go, yeah. He says, come on with me. This guy jaunting around with jeans and a lumberjack looking shirt. And he walks me down this long hallway to this conference room, with this huge table, like 20 chairs around it. I walk in and there's Mally. Hi, Mally. And her assistant with the camera, where's Jim Cameron? I probably said Mr. Cameron. And the guy who brought me in goes, oh, that's me. <laughs> and I looked at because I, you know, you don't know what directors look like. Yeah. You know, they're, all, they're, they're not in the public eye. Right. They, not back then, anyway. Well, I looked at him and they're like, there was a connection. It's like, he looked at me and he goes, okay, you don't have to do the corset scene I already saw you do that I want you to do the end of the movie and I went the end of the movie okay got it because the end of the movie is just little bits you know the ship is sinking and it's a cut to you know me going Rose get in the boat and you know then the ship goes down and then we're you know it's little pieces I said well I'm prepared to do all of them, but can we do a shot and then stop and then I'll reset myself to get into that emotional place and then you'll run it, run the camera again. He goes, yeah, absolutely. 
He picks up his own camera and he's hand holding it, shooting me. As I'm doing these little moments. <laughs> Vignettes. Vignettes. So then the scene, I don't know if you remember it, but there's a moment when the ship is beginning to sink and I get into the lifeboat and I turn around thinking my daughter, Kate Winslet, is going to be right behind me. And I go, Rose, get in the boat, get in the boat. And she goes, no, mother, you know, whatever she says. And I said to Jim in the audition, I said, okay, you've got the camera. You know what? I'd like to, I know you're probably going to want to shoot down on me, right? Because I'm getting in the boat because the, the ship is sinking, but the lifeboat is going down also. Can we get up on the table and then I'll step down into the chair so that you'll be up and you'll be able to see me looking wow. up. And he goes, yeah, You're let's like directing. do it. I know. But it, you know what it was? I was so turned on creatively. Yeah. I just felt so connected with him that I didn't feel like I was overstepping or directing. I just thought this is You're the way I can show you <clears throat> what Ruth is going through. And I felt permission it was just a creative experience. And when he was up there and Mally get up in the, on the table too because she's reading the lines. And he's at one point he goes, well, now I know who's going to direct the scene if I get sick this day, which was I thought was like a little positive thing. Like, oh, he's really thinking that maybe I'm going to get this job. Right. Give me this job. Yeah, so we did that. And I walked out of there feeling so good because I felt that I let my creativity shine. Go. Yeah. 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 When your love has moved away You must face yourself and you must say I remember better days Don't you cry cause she is gone she is only moving on Chasing mirrors through a haze
So Sheila Jaffe, right? Yeah. Sheila's a good friend of mine, and she's mm. also obsessed with adoption. Yeah. So <laughs> whenever I don't get the job or the thing, and she's always teases me on the phone and says, you know, they knew. And I'm like, what did they know? She goes, you know that you're, you're not good enough. You know, because we have that in our heads from adoption. Oh, from adoption. So we both just laugh our heads off. Oh, God, that, that <laughs> <that's>, bittersweet. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we yeah. grew up, though, with that voice. I have a funny story. I went to see uh, Aerosmith do the Hollywood Bowl only like four or five years ago, four or five years ago, I think. Uh, And Jack was there. So Jack's the guy that did all the early Aerosmith records. And I don't know how Sheila came up, but Steven Tyler and, and Jack were standing there and they go, you know, Sheila was the hottest chick in New York City. And I said, come on, I know her as my friend that I helped, you know, we do these yeah. adoption things. They're like, no, you have no idea. <laughs> and we both tried our best and she wasn't having it. And now I tease Sheila all the time because I'm yeah. like, so you were like a thing. Like there was oh. a, and Steven Tyler's like, oh, you don't know. There was a lot of people that wanted Sheila. They and were like Sheila lined wasn't up. interested. She was on to everything, mm-hmm. you know, but I didn't, I, it's weird when you have some friend that you met many moons later yeah and you know a certain way right and then these two dudes are acting like goofy before playing a major show at hollywood bowl about sheila, sheila. jaffe yeah so i hit her up i'm like sheila I, we have to talk yes <laughs> yeah 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 it's a, it turns out to be such a small world after it's all it's really small yeah 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 she's funny i love to i always love to hang out with her and and she gave me a gig doing something where Penny's directing and I'm kind of like assistant directing and shooting stills and being put into all this stuff with all of their old friends and it was just like a pleasure to watch Penny Penny. who liked me I think only because I smoked too much so she felt safe with me because she wasn't the nicest person on this set she was kind of like you know wearing like an Adidas sweatsuit and just pushing people around I remember like she read Tony Danza like a riot act over you know not doing a good performance and this is on like a thing for an adoption you know for Felix Camp Felix which is Sheila's big thing yeah and I was like wow she just went north and just made him feel like he was six and then you know oh no when she came back to me it was okay because I chain smoked you know oh yeah she's a tough woman I have a Penny Marshall story tell me (laughs) this is when auditions on tape started happening it was for Big. Okay, with Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks yeah. Before he was big. Before he was big, yeah. He was bosom buddies back then. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so that's big, but not it was and he became like what I never thought Tom would be the guy he is. He's oh just my bigger God. than shit. It's bigger weird. than bigger yeah. than anything, right? So I go in and audition and I'm auditioned for the part of the kid, you know, when, when Tom's character was young, the next door neighbor's mother. It's not a big part, but it's you know, there are scenes where 
the kid goes next door and is with the family and everything. So I auditioned for it on tape and then I get the job. So I find myself like going out to New Jersey and, you know, the scene is like we're all in our robes because it's a breakfast scene or something like that. Anyway, I get to the set. I've never met Penny before. And I'm standing there outside of the house and I see her look at me. She squints her eyes and walks over to me. She goes, who are you? I go, I'm Francis Fisher and I'm playing so-and-so. She goes, you're not Jewish. I go, I'm supposed to be Jewish. She goes, you're not the same person I saw on the tape. I go, I swear I, I am. I look like a goy, right? So she goes, well, you know, go, go over there and see all those women standing around watching the looky-loos who live in this neighborhood. Go over there and learn how to be like them. Okay, because wow. they're all Jewish women, I guess. They're all kind of funky. I mean, I was kind of young, you know? I was like 30-something, yeah. early. She's a toughie. 30s. I thought, this is never going to work. They're going to fire me any minute, and they're going to go find some Jewish actress to come in and play this part. No, we're shooting it, and in the back of my mind, I go, this is never going to make the movie. And I went over to her, I said, Penny, you don't have to do this. It's never going to be in the movies. Oh, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to make our day. Did it. Home, whatever. Months go by. And she, she leaves me a message and she says, you didn't make the cut, but if you want a copy of your scene, I cut it together for you. If it's going so to help nice you for her. your career. Wow. Thank you. What a sweetheart. Yeah. Loved her for Hardly that. Hardly anyone would do that. Yeah. I have a friend that's an actor and he says, I do all of this stuff and I put it, you know, on the screen and I like being 50 feet tall. I don't like the other part, which is like trying to sell a movie through like all these mechanisms. Basically, he doesn't want to be seen as a person because you'll start picking apart his performances. There's a couple of my friends that are like that, that are great, that don't want to do interviews, don't want to do things because they feel like you'll start going taking the magic out of the, the 50-foot person. Do you ever have well, that struggle with no, that? No, I've never, because I don't see, I don't think I've ever seen myself in a, as a 50-foot person. Mm-hmm. That was the old days, the movie stars, before there were, and when, when all of the publicity was carefully monitored right. and was handled by the PR people, mm-hmm. and movie stars were bigger than life and, it's you mystique. Didn't see it was the a mystique. mystique. Yeah, there's yeah. no mystique anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, the tabloids have ruined that. And then the whole selfie generation. What's it like watching your daughter start to do it? Is it exciting? I, you know, I'm so happy that she has that talent and the ability to create characters. I mean, when I think about what she's been exposed to, as opposed to what I, I came in with nothing. I had no idea what I was doing. And she's grown up in this business yeah. in a certain way. She knows what it's like to walk down a red carpet. She's been on a movie set. I would take her, obviously, I'd take her to all my locations, you know. So it's not a mystery to her. Mm-hmm. And she's got talent. Yeah, she's magical. Which is, you know, thank God. It's from her mother. Well, she's got the <laughs> she's genes. She's got double. She's, she's got, got the both. genes, yeah. you know, yeah. 
So tell me about uh, when did you get into all this philanthropy? I see you always posting oh, something or something's well, always you know, going on. Okay, so the business started changing. Right. And um, I found myself turning down or not being excited about some of the material that was coming to me. And there were social justice issues uh, that spoke to me more. I need to get back to acting mm-hmm. and put my activism into the acting. And not that I haven't before. I've always pretty much done roles that have a social and activist part to them in some way, even if they're not blaring that. So some form of consciousness to the role, just not yeah, material. Yeah, like I'm not going to do horror movies. I'm not attracted to them. I think that the, your psyche doesn't know the difference between something that's made up and something that's supposedly real. So you think we you know? store it and sometimes enact it. Yeah. And it was inspired from something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, nobody gets paid for activism. But it turned you on, like the, that area it's passion. was the old... yeah. screenplay that mattered for you yeah yeah that's interesting yeah and so for the last couple of years especially i have immersed myself in because it seems like everything has just been going light speed right yeah every day something it's also the way that we all have so much access so immediately that these cycles are just faster and faster and faster and faster my kids will probably be anti because they're seeing us doing it, and anything that you see a parent doing is what you're not going to do. Right. It's just like, I can imagine it's going to get more, I don't know if I'd say Bob Dylan and Mystique and not showing yourself eating a burrito, you know? Um, I know. I bet you it gets non-disclosure. Yeah. Or, or else where can it go? I feel like we're going 6,000 miles an hour towards a wall, and we're going to blow up. Have you ever heard that Laurence Olivier story? Which one? The one uh, with Dustin Hoffman. Oh, yeah. The, the, when he went out and stayed out all night? No. no. Oh, no. It was a different the, one? I was at Soho House with, like, uh, there was this thing where um, Dustin showed The Graduate and spoke about it. It was a magical moment. And it was probably, like, you know, 15 or 20, mostly 20-year-olds. And I was, like, the old dude in the room. And he started telling stories. But one of them, which is, I never heard before, was that... Uh, the old days when Mike Nichols called me to get the role, which was really hard because it was Robert Redford's and they didn't want a weird looking Jewish kid as this guy. Bob Dylan and somebody else were in his apartment and they said, tell him no. And he's like, no, like kind of denied it, but was like, what the fuck am I doing? Bob told Dustin, Dustin, to, like, he's to like, turn I got the down? thing, he's like, chill, like down. So he was <laughs> saying to the teenagers, like, basically you kids want it. Our game was like, nah, man, you know, you can't have this, right? It was a different perception. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah. other one was he said he was complaining at some restaurant going, why are we doing this? Why are we struggling? And it wasn't on set. It was just later in life. Uh, um, Olivier walked up to him and he goes, why are we doing this? And he sits down and he goes, are you serious? Like, why are we doing this, this career, this struggle, this performance? And he goes, yeah, Why? And he got two inches off his face. He goes, you don't know why? And he goes, no. And he goes, look at me, 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 look at me. And then walked away from him. (laughs) Because that's why we're doing this. Wow. (laughs) But that was a gem of being at like this room for a minute listening to that guy talk. Yeah. Oh, Dustin. You know. (laughs) His stories are great. Yeah, I got to know him when he was at the actor's studio uh, when I was a new member that was a great place to be able to 
pick someone's brain, you know, afterwards, you know, after the session was over, you like kind of, can you, can we have a cup of coffee? I want to ask you a few things. Wow. And he was, you know, yeah. that kind of All I know him person. from is my friend Yossi was cooking for him for a long time. So I'd get lucky moments because my buddy was his full-time chef. Yeah. Live-in chef. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Where are you going from here? Who the heck knows? I'm doing spring cleaning. That's always good. That's I'm exciting. literally right after this, I'm going to go home and continue purging. You know, it's, do I love it? Do I want to live with it? Or do, do I know someone who will benefit from yeah. this? Yeah, I need to do that. Yeah. Let go of all this stuff. And do you know what else is happening? Was, uh, okay, so one of my activist uh, roles is I'm on the board of the Environmental Media Association. And we have a, a thing that we've hooked up with H&M which was fast fashion, you know, okay. it was horrible circumstances where people were making cheap clothes and sweatshop conditions. Mm-hmm. Well, now they're changing their whole thing. What H&M is doing, they're, mm-hmm. they're creating a recycled line of clothing. So all you have to do is take your big bag of old clothes or old fabrics, whatever, and they pull them apart and repurpose them oh, cool. and remake new clothes. And they give you a certain discount on the next purchase you make at H&M. Oh, that's great. So it's, it's about bringing consciousness into like fast fashion. And, and it's about people waking up, you know. Yeah. There's so much to do on this planet, as you know. I know. The climate crisis is, is upon us. We've got 10 years. 10 no years. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming. Oh, my God. It just... It's so funny jogging my memory. These are things I haven't thought about in years. I realize I have so much more. There is a story. Every everybody I'm doing has part a two. Story. I already know. <laughs> I'll just do really good deep dive. I'm going to get this fabulous job, and I'm going to come back and go. You've had a hundred fabulous jobs, yeah. but how many films have you done? I I don't know. 100. I, around a hundred, and then television series. I'm actually doing a cool series right now called Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Damon Lindelof, he did The Leftovers and oh. um, Lost. He's yeah. a brilliant, brilliant writer. Yeah, it's watch. It's a it's a graphic novel, mm-hmm. and Regina King is the star. Mm. Who is like, is this her year or what? She's just amazing, and a lot of cool people are in it. And so I'm going back and forth to um, Atlanta shooting, you know, sporadically. Atlanta. Yeah, Atlanta, Hollywood South.
chose Yeah Show your brain Yeah Those with fame Yeah On a mission Led By intuition You should listen Because